This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm here with Victoria. Hi, Victoria. Hey, Annie. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Good. I'm so excited to hear your story. I've heard, you know, bits and pieces of it and I'm, I'm excited to put the whole, put all the dots together. So what, yeah. why don't you kind of take me back to the beginning for you? Where did it all start? Okay. Um, well, I, I was thinking about this and something came to me in the middle of the night and I know you are so gracious to have so many guests share their stories. And before I get started with mine, um, I just wanted to share that um, one of the things that I found in um, while drinking before I became alcohol free is that um, no matter what your story, and we all have a different one, but I found that a similar theme that we all share is that while we are drinking, um, our lives don't really align with our core values. And one of the exercises I did as I was going through the process of, you know, deciding to moderate or become completely alcohol free was I came across a really simple quiz. It took me about five minutes and it was just to figure out what are my core values. And when I saw the results of the quiz, I wasn't surprised because they, they are my core values. But then someone posed a question to me and said, how do those core values line up with you? when you have alcohol in your system. And that was really a big moment for me. So I just wanted to start with that because I think regardless of how we got to where we are, listening to your podcast, obviously whoever's listening is thinking about their relationship with alcohol. But um, I think that's just a great core question that we can ask ourselves. Like what are our core values and how does, how do I, when I'm in in, in that world of drinking, how do I show up? according to those values? Am I aligned with those values? So I don't know. That was just something that came to me around four in the morning with our wacky sleep schedules during COVID. (laughs) And where is that quiz and where people can find it? Yes. Yes. Um, I can send you the link. Um, It's, it's a really quick quiz. There's several options. I've taken ones that are long, that are longer, but this one took like five minutes. Okay. So um, I'll share that link with you. Yeah. Um, But anyway, um, so my story. I, um, I was born in Pennsylvania, but uh, spent most of my life in Florida. I grew up in a small town outside of Orlando. And um, I was the youngest child. I had an older brother, have an older brother who's five years older. And um, I grew up in a home where um, there was a lot of dysfunction. Um, my mom had this uh, this was the 1970s and 80s my mom had undiagnosed untreated mental illness uh that was that was not easy um there's a long history on my paternal side of um excessive drinking so growing up um there were little things like i i remember a lot of um just uneasiness in my home and, you know, we pick up on that energy as a child and we can't always name it. But um, my mom, 
you know, God bless her soul. She passed 20 years ago. And, and I feel, I feel sad that she, she lived in a time when, when these things weren't addressed the way they are today. But, um, she was just always pretty sad. And when I came along, she told me that I was, um, her last chance at happiness. And thank God she had me because now she could be happy. And I was like six. <laughs> so like a lot of us, I grew up with, um, you know, good girl syndrome, wanting to be perfect. If things were off in my home, I naturally assumed it was something that I had not done properly or um, something I could fix. So I internalized that, um, that rescuing behavior very, very early on in my life. And um, did my best to succeed at everything I did. Uh, I was pretty hard on myself if I didn't. And, you know, in my home, I was kind of like the normal one. And I prided myself on that uh, and worked really hard to maintain that. But then as I got older, when I became a teenager and just, you know, hit my sassy teenage years and started rolling my eyes and doing my hair flip at my mom and the, everything ended in the uh, mom, <laughs> all of that, like we do as normal teenagers. Um, she took it very personally and it was said and implied in almost everything she did that I was a disappointment. And she would say things like, well, now I'll never get to be happy. And when I was l younger, it made me very sad and concerned. But as I got older, I got to the point where I just said, well, I don't care anymore. I don't care what you think. Um, when I was about 15, my dad became a health nut. He stopped drinking and stopped smoking and started running. He's now almost 82 and has done, I don't even know how many marathons and triathlons, Ironmans. Um, he's amazing. And so I wanted to be like him and nothing like my mom. So I was a dancer when I was younger. Uh, but then I got more into fitness as I got older in my teenage years, I started doing Taekwondo like you <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. And, um, and then I remember, I remember as I got a little older in my teenage years, becoming aware of how dysfunctional, and insane my, my family life was because my brother was in a lot of trouble. My mom was, you know, all over the place with her moods and my dad was just running <laughs> all the time, literally, literally and figuratively. So um, I remember going into my guidance counselor's office in 10th or 11th, probably 10th grade with a list. And I said, okay, how do I get out of here? tell me what ex what grades I need to get, what extracurricular activities I need to do, what leadership activities I should engage in. And they were like, okay, we suggest this, this, and this. Well, I did it, checked off all the boxes and graduated. And I mean, burned rubber on the way out of my driveway to get to college. So um, I couldn't wait to get there. I went to college. Um, and I love being in college. And it's weird because I went there thinking that I was a bad kid because of the implication my mom had given me. But in truth, I was actually a really good kid. I didn't do anything in high school that other kids didn't do. I didn't have a drinking problem. I um, 
got good grades. I was extremely active in my youth group and everything else. Um, but I had that, um, that sense that something was wrong with me, that I was bad. And so everything that I would do that could be considered bad or naughty, I would do in secret. So, um, you know, I, I never felt that I could be authentic. I could never be bad. I could never misbehave. So um, it kind of led me into a, a way of living that was very duplistic where, you know, part of me was on the outside doing everything right. And then if something was wrong on the inside, I was either hiding it or ignoring it. Um, so I went to college and, and I loved college. We, I went to a big football school and did all the, all the things, you know, the sorority and, and all the activities. And I really loved that. Um, made a lot of good friends and we drank the way college kids drank in the eighties and early nineties. Um, but aside from hangovers, I never had any bad consequences. It never was something that I was driven to do. It was more just circumstantial where, you know, we'd be at a party and people would drink. So I graduated with a degree in dietetics and also studied exercise physiology and um, married my college sweetheart. And we moved to Miami and we had children. We had three kids within four years. And as I look back, um, you know, I, I can't even recall being drunk from the time I graduated from college until my late twenties. I, I mean, we would, if we were cooking out, we would, you know, open a bottle of wine and there would be a quarter of a bottle left and we just throw it away or save it. And, um, so I remember thinking, Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't get the, the, the curse, whatever you call it, you know, that ran on one side of my family. I dodged that bullet. It only happens to the men. Um, so I, I, really gave no thought to it. I, I was busy with my three children and very fit. I was a runner um, and also a trainer. And so alcohol was really not a big part of my life. Then in 1999, I'll go back one second. I do remember in college um, during like finals weeks that I would have a shortness of breath. And of course, back then, no one knew what that was. I just called it nerves, but I recognize it now that it was anxiety. Um, <clears throat> so, and I'm referencing that for a reason. Um, in 1999, I was getting my daughter ready for school and I had two babies and my dad called. My parents were divorced by this time. My mom lived in Pennsylvania and we got a call and my dad said, um, put your husband on the phone. And I thought, oh God, wrong and I thought it was my brother because he had always been the one that I worried about the most but it was my mom she had um, suffered a brain aneurysm and was pretty much on life support so we flew up there um, I stayed for a week and then sadly she passed away um, and while I was in the hospital dealing with that that limbo of not knowing if she would recover or not not knowing if we'd bring her to Florida, if I could take care of her, all of those things. Um, I suffered a panic attack in the hospital 
and the doctors had to help me breathe and give me some kind of medication to calm me down. And my dad and I would try to go for a run together up there and I, I found that I couldn't catch my breath. So after she died, um, there were some things that happened around her death and, and some things that I found, you know, after she died that to me at the time felt like a confirmation of everything I had internally thought she thought about me. So basically when she died, I, I got the message. And again, this is mental illness, but I got the message that I wasn't enough, that I wasn't okay, that I had been a disappointment to her. So, sorry for the water bottle. Um, so my, my husband at the time had, had flown back to Florida to be with our children because we'd been away for quite a few days. And so I flew back by myself and I got absolutely drunk on the way home. I had never done that. I had never drank in an airport. I'd never drank on a plane. I got in a cab and threw up out the cab. <laughs> and I came home and my husband was like, whoa. He, he hadn't seen me like that. And I just was, I just remember crying and saying, I'm broken. Something broke. Um, so for me, it was a very specific time when I began to consume alcohol versus use alcohol. And over the next several months, um, you know, I, I tried to go back to normal life. I, took, I had three children under the age of seven. Um, my husband was an attorney, worked a lot. So, you know, it was just expected that I would go back to normal life. And I tried. But again, with the running, I kept finding I couldn't catch my breath. So, you know, the bottle of wine that we would occasionally open when he would come home from work turned into me opening the bottle while I was taking care of my kids. And, um, and then sometimes hiding the bottle and opening a new one with him. Uh, you know, it just slowly progressed to where I was drinking on a regular basis, drinking by myself. And, you know, I remember doing story hour with my kids and I'd have wine there and my husband coming home and just sort of going, Hmm. So I had a conversation with my brother and told him what had been happening. And he reminded me of the history in our family and said, you know, I wouldn't go down that path. So I stopped. I said, you know what? You're right. This is turning into a problem. I'll just stop. And, but I never dealt with the internal stuff going on. Um, and I just proceeded with life, did the best I could. And then um, about two years after that, my husband and I separated and ultimately divorced. So suddenly I went from being a stay-at-home mom with three little kids and that security and, you know, being married to a person that I thought would love me unconditionally to, okay, I wasn't enough for him either. Okay. So overnight I went to, you know, pretty much full-time care of my children working. I started teaching Pilates. I built a studio at my house eventually and cobbled together a good life, but the drinking was becoming more and more of a crutch. Um, stop me at any time if I'm rambling. No, this is great. Um, <laughs> so 
and and this was you know this was 2003 and i'd say it was kind of the beginning of the mommy wine culture where i was finding it easier and easier to drink with friends it was more accepted um and you know i had i had a lot of responsibilities so i was the only adult in the house my children were still young um my daughter was seven, my kids were seven, five, and four when I got divorced. So um, I had a lot to do. Plus I had to be up at 6 a.m. to train clients, get the kids to school, train all day, pick them up, do homework, cook dinner. So I had to kind of squeeze alcohol in, but I did recognize it was becoming more of that go-to whenever I would feel overwhelmed, whenever I would feel exhausted, whenever I would feel stressed. Um, You know, it was like, Sunday night, the kids knew they had to go to bed. I would close the door because mommy was watching an adult show called Sex in the City. And I would sit there and drink my wine. And that was my, I started to consider wine time, me time. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, it, it just sort of, there was that little voice in the back of my head. Like this doesn't really align with who you are and what I do for a living. I'm, I'm, you know, a nutritionist and a, and a fitness professional. And here I am teaching people how to eat and how to exercise. And I'm drinking too much wine. And when I say too much wine, too much wine for me, I knew it didn't fit with who I was. Right. But there wasn't the awareness back then. It was black and white. So the only reference I had were people whom I'd seen in the media or in my family who had hit a really ugly rock bottom. Um, I didn't, I didn't know what alcohol dependent females could look like. I thought though they were the moms who, you know, didn't, didn't cook healthy meals for their kids and their kids had, you know, dirty feet or Mm. didn't go to the dentist for their cleanings. And, you know, I'm like, I'm fine. It's just, that's my, that's my, that's my kind of like, I used to call it my wubby, you know, like that's my thing. I do everything else right. But over time, as I knew it was becoming more of an issue, I went back into that kind of secretive hiding it, you know, like I knew it wasn't aligned with who I was. So I started to be more secretive about it. And not be as honest about how much I had had or something like that. And again, that goes back to, you know, learning as I was growing up that if I wasn't perfect, then I was bad. And that had to be hidden. That couldn't, that couldn't, that was not okay. And that was not allowed to be talked about. So I would go to therapists and I would, you know, try to work through all my, my mommy issues and all the things, but like a lot of us, you know, alcohol consumption didn't really come into the conversation. And you know, of course, back then, before I listened to your book, and I've, I've learned other things, but, you know, I didn't realize what alcohol was doing to my brain, even if I wasn't getting drunk all the time. Um, I didn't realize what it was doing to my brain and how it was depressing me. Um, so I just kind of went on. I ended up getting married um, about four or five years after my divorce and quickly became pregnant and we have a beautiful 12 year old. And when I was pregnant, of course I didn't drink. I felt, I felt okay, but I did notice it was different than my other pregnancies where I did 
feel a little deprived and a little like, oh, you know, I miss my wine time. And that was another red flag. Um, and then as soon as my daughter was born, you know, I treated myself to, you know, champagne and mimosas and all the things that you do, not while I was breast breastfeeding, but after I was done nursing. Um, and by that time, and I've talked about this before, you know, I had my first three kids in the 90s and my fourth child in 2008. And there had been a paradigm shift in the mommy wine culture. So when I started going to activities with my youngest daughter, there was wine everywhere. Um, everyone seemed to be doing it. So I thought, well, this works for me. And, and it also took the, um, it took the, the lens off of myself because I was just comparing myself to everyone else's external presentation, the way that they presented themselves drinking. And I seemed to be on par with them. So I didn't give it a lot of thought for, for a while longer. Um, <clears throat> but then I was just noticing as time went by that, you know, the anxiety kept increasing. Um, my teenage, my kids were now becoming teenagers. So I had three, <laughs> you think three, having three little ones is tough. Three teenagers was crazy. Um, they were in four different schools at one point. Wow. And they all had their own, their own battles and their own crises and things like that. And I just, I remember thinking, I need to work on this drinking thing. I need to get this under control. But I kept getting hit by these waves of drama, of family stuff, of whatever it was. Um, so I just kind of felt like I was paddling and sinking and paddling and sinking. Uh, but it was kind of on my list of things to do, <laughs> address the wine thing. But I just felt like there were so many other things that needed to be addressed. Well, of course, drinking wasn't doing me any favors in finding solutions to anything, but I thought it was. Um, and I mistook, you know, trying to fix my children for, I mistook that for love. I thought, well, I love them so much I can fix them. And then of course you can't control other people. So I'd get more frustrated. Um, so that just kind of went on for a while and I would, you know, stop and then I would start again and then I would stop and then I would start again. And then I would moderate for a long period of time. And then I'd find myself sloppy and it was just going on and on and on you know, I had teenagers, I knew I wasn't modeling appropriate behavior, but everyone else seemed to be doing it too. Um, so when my three older children had graduated high school, we decided to move out here to beautiful Colorado and raise our daughter in just a different environment. Miami is beautiful, but a difficult place to live with the crowd and the heat and the hurricanes and the mosquitoes. So we came out here and, you know, the drinking was, it was easier to manage in many ways because the culture out here is different. Um, I didn't have friends who, who drank. I didn't do girls wine lunches, anything like that. But I still found, I call it my default button. It was like, whenever I would come into a situation that I didn't know how to handle, I found myself defaulting to that, to what I thought 
was alleviate the anxiety. Um, and it didn't work. <laughs> so again, I was back and forth with the, I was on it, then I was off it, I was on it, I was off it. Um, but it kept making me feel worse about myself and physically. You know, I was entering perimenopause. I um, just all the things, you know, starting to have trouble sleeping and that little pooch in the middle of your stomach that is always there and, you know, just all the things. And I knew, again, like I said at the beginning, it just wasn't aligning with who I was as a person. I was much more reactive and overly emotional. Um, I kind of used wine to access feelings that I would suppress. So grief or anger about my mom, about things in my family, anything that, you know, I felt like I didn't know how to deal with on a healthy level whenever I would go into that wine bottle, all the stuff would come up, but not in a, not in a healthy way. <laughs> so again, it wasn't doing me any favors and it, and it started to feel, you know, like that best friend who turns, turns on you. You know, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought we had an agreement. We're friends. You're not feeling like a friend anymore. Um, right. So yeah, <laughs> it's like, I feel like you're a little two-faced. We need to have a talk. Um, am I okay with just continuing? Do you have any yeah, questions? it's great. Okay. Okay. Um, so anyway, fast forward, uh, 2018, I was in the shower after a workout and I felt a lump in my breast and I had just had a healthy mammogram about six months prior. Uh, I was 47. Wow. Um, and had no history of breast cancer in my family. So, but I felt something and it didn't feel right. So I went to the doctor four days later and um, it was, you know, that dreaded thing where you're sitting in the waiting room in your robe and the other women are coming and going and you're still there and they bring you back in, they bring you back in again. Then the radiologist comes in and she did an ultrasound and she said, this is ugly this is cancer. And it was like my world just narrowed to a pinpoint. I thought, what, <laughs> what did I just hear? Um, so that obviously was a big shift. Um, the funny thing is when I was diagnosed, I had always been so healthy, you know, the bone broth and the green juice and the yoga and all the healthy things. The only thing that didn't fit was the wine. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I'm obviously never going to drink again in my life because now I have to fight for my life. And then after that, there's no way I will do anything ever to put my health at risk. And um, it turns out I, I do carry the BRCA1 mutation. So I was born with about a 75% chance of getting this. Um, so I went through a very, very aggressive, it was a very aggressive breast cancer. Um, so I had to go through, you know, the, the kitchen sink regimen, they call it. So I had, um, I had 16 rounds of chemotherapy. I had um, a double mastectomy, a hysterectomy, like 28 rounds of radiation, and then six months of oral chemotherapy. 
so to say I was wiped out is an understatement. It was a really, really tough time. I developed sepsis at one point and, you know, was in the hospital for 10 days. I developed cellulitis after my um, mastectomy and was in the hospital for three or four days. And, you know, when I was in the battle, and this is what I realized in my life is that when I'm in the battle, I show up and I fight like nobody's business, but I don't deal with the aftermath very well. <laughs> um, so what I found was after treatment, I was absolutely beat up and I had a lot of expectations of myself and what, what my life would be like after treatment. And when my reality didn't match my expectations, um, I fell into a really bad depression. That's kind of when everything hit me, hence the name after the crisis for my podcast. But, um, you know, I feel like after we go through something like that, society and ourselves, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be a certain way, you know, or to have a period of time where you're not okay. Well, it's okay. She just lost her husband or she just went through a divorce or she just had cancer, you know, where you're, it's okay to not be okay. But there comes a point where you're supposed to be okay. And so people saw me ring the bell after chemo. They saw me start to grow a little bit of hair back and I put on a brave face, but inside I was not doing okay. Um, and I found myself in utter disbelief when I picked up alcohol. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I just went through absolute hell. And why am I considering drinking? And now I'm doing it. And it was a brief period. Um, and you can only imagine what my body, I mean, talk about a hangover. <laughs> my body had just been beat up for a year and a half and I drank. And I mean, the shame that was attached to that. And nobody knew except my husband and my oncologist. And they were like, Victoria. <laughs> and I couldn't put it together. I thought, why why would I do this? I just went through so much. I lost my breast, my, my uterus, my, my hair, my, you know, everything, my immune system. Why would I do anything to hurt myself? And that led me to a very interesting path that, um, that included your book, that included a lot of intense therapy, um, EMDR. We've talked about that before. Um, you know, just, just kind of going deep, going, pulling out those roots instead, instead of the way my therapist put it was, you know, you've been putting pretty flowers and mulch around it, but you've got to go in and dig the roots out and get to the bottom of it. And so um, I know in your, in your coaching, you talk about the three levels, the three S's, you know, and so I understood what alcohol did to me as a substance. Um, I'd kind of gotten over the society part of it because I, I'm not in a big drinking society now. Plus as a cancer survivor, no one wants me to, no one, no one's pushing me to drink anyway. So I felt, I felt safe in the society part. It's what I realized now is that the reason I went back to it is because of the self. I had not dealt with the things that I needed to deal with that had put me in that default mode to begin with. That's why alcohol sort of became my, my default, you know, was, was the stuff on the inside. Um, so 
you know, when I kind of started to get to the bottom of that and also, you know, I, I listened to your book, I got tired of reading because I'd been on my butt for so long when I had cancer. So I do a lot of audiobooks, and you're, you just, it, what you said resonated with me so much and it took the shame away because I realized that number one, my brain and my body were not trying to kill me. They were trying to protect me because when I started using alcohol as self-medication, my primitive brain learned that this is what we do when we feel scared or unsafe. Mm -hmm. And when I came out of cancer treatment, I was living as a broken body and a broken spirit and living with the fear of recurrence. Um, and I didn't have the tools to deal with that. So it's only natural that my brain would say, well, duh, what do you do when you feel scared or unsafe? Um, and thankfully that was again, a brief period. And I, you know, I realized, okay, Victoria, it's time to get, really vulnerable. You think being vulnerable is losing your hair and breasts? No, it's a lot more than that. <laughs> so I had to really um, take away the facade and, and, and go internally and, and do the work. And, um, you know, and the things that I learned from your book took so much of, of the emotion out of my, out of looking at my relationship with alcohol. It just allowed me to look at it as a, as just an observation instead mm -hmm. of the shame and instead of the, you know, the, the beating myself up about what I should have, could have, would have, um, it just went, Oh, well, that makes sense. Of course, that's what I used. You know, some people use food. Some people use plastic surgery. They're addicted to lip injected injections or, you know, okay, I used wine. Hmm. All right. And so it allowed me to, take the emotion out of it and deal with my emotions on a different level and then look at alcohol for what it was. And that I'm like, Oh, okay, well, that's a depressant. Um, it just increases my anxiety. And now I have other things that I can use. So, okay, that's easy. So it made the breakup with my best friend a lot easier, <laughs> yeah. I guess is, is what I'm saying. Um, and it just, I don't know. I found that once I took the negotiation out of if I wanted to moderate, because again, it's not if you can, oftentimes you can, many people can. Um, I just decided I was tired of wasting the energy on it. It was just like a tired old relationship that wasn't serving me. And once I took that negotiation out, it's like my brain just expanded. <laughs> I found myself with all these creative ideas of what I wanted to do and what I want my life to look like now. And um, it's just given me a, a, a much healthier way to deal with life, you know, Give, given me a, the ability to take a breath before I react, think about things, you know. Um, and again, it feels good now whenever I look at these core values to know that I am living in accordance to those values. Not always, not perfectly, yeah. but it's authentic. At least it's authentic. So if I'm not, at least it's not because of something I've put in my body. It's just me being me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> oh, wow. What a journey. 
So much yeah, I'm good. sorry if I talk too much. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> that's what it's for. This is great. Um, I love what you say about like, it just is like freeing up so much space when you make, you know, that decision. It's, mm-hmm. I had the, the same experience. It's, it's so true. And, um, and just so empowering to think, you know, even through all of this, what really, what really brought you through it on the other end is putting down the guilt and putting down the blame and putting down the shame. Yeah. That was the thing that was holding me back for so long because I just thought, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I, 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 I'm a smart woman. I'm a great mom. I love my children more than anything. I can do this and the willpower and then the willpower would give up, give out. And then the shame, Yeah. that crushing shame. And it, it just feels wonderful to have found a way through this that doesn't, doesn't involve that and it doesn't mean you don't look at the things that you could have done better like oh okay but you go okay well I did the best I could with what I had and now I do differently and if I screw up at least it's it's me screwing up you know and at least the way I like to say it is now if I have a bad day at least the next day I don't wake up with more wreckage you know like oh great I just poured gasoline on that on that little ember you know and blew everything up at least it's like okay well okay the problem is still there but at least I didn't make it so much worse and that's a good feeling so what is life you know like now for you what about socially and you know with your husband and you know how are things they're better um my older kids they they knew that I struggled they did not like me when I would drink um so they have been wonderfully supportive and um i mean it's it's improved all of our relationships um most of my my children are alcohol free uh just because they they don't want to go down that same they don't they don't they see what it does to people and so um our life really doesn't have much to do with alcohol anymore, but it has so it has to do with so so many better things. Um, there's a lot less drama. Um, you know, I live an authentic life now. I I can wake up and, uh, you know, even if I feel a little tired, I've dealt with chronic pain since my cancer treatment. Chemo does that, um, but. Um, you know, I'm getting healthier and, and I'm more able to do what I want to do. I can exercise more now. And, um, I never thought I would have a podcast, but, um, I've created a podcast about life after crisis, any kind of crisis. Um, because I think it's, it's important for people to understand that there isn't a, there's not a finish line after you go through something difficult, you don't have to be okay. It's okay to have residual stuff come up and you can find healthier ways to deal with it. Because it, what I'm, what I found in my cancer groups and just in my different interviews, I've interviewed all sorts of different topics is that many people fall into these maladaptive behaviors, these maladaptive coping skills after they've gone through something because they feel alone and they don't know how to deal with it. And they feel like they should be over it. They should be fine. They should be grateful. And, you know, oftentimes they fall into some unhealthy patterns. So we talk about that. Um, I've become an integrative nutrition coach. Uh, I did that while I was in treatment, which was great. It was a 40 week online module. 
So that updated my dietetics background and also just um, gave me a more integrative approach to it. Uh, but then when I finished my certification, um, I may or may not have been stalking you a little bit looking for a coaching program. <laughs> but I thought, you know, I wish I could be, um, I wish I could be a This Naked Mind coach because so many of these things that we talk about in integrative nutrition could be balanced out more easily if the, if the alcohol component is addressed, if there is an alcohol component. And if it's not alcohol, maybe it's a food addiction or maybe it's a sugar addiction or a social media addiction, whatever it is. But I thought, you know, I really would love to learn to coach around this method with this methodology to address some of the, some of the elephants in the room that people don't always want to, or know how to coach around. So, um, I am one of your students, <laughs> uh, so I'm really grateful for that. I graduate, I think we finish in August, and, uh, you know, I'm just looking forward to sharing my story, and and um, I'm just hoping that it's relatable, because um, I think there's a lot of women just like, just like me, you know, who, who are just wondering, you know, not am I an alcoholic? but wondering, is this serving me? Is this helping me live according to my core values? Because I think any kind of label is stigmatizing, it's misunderstood, and this is just a really freeing way to look at it. Like, is it serving me? The same way, you know, you and I have talked about gluten. Does gluten serve me? No, it doesn't. It makes my stomach hurt and it makes my joints hurt. I don't have to say I'm a glutaholic. <laughs> I can just say it doesn't serve me. So I avoid it. It's, I don't, you know, and it just makes it so much easier. It takes the emotion out of it and you just make some different choices. So yeah, life is, uh, life is pretty good right now. <laughs> That's so awesome. So where can people find you if they want to um, find you or your podcast? Yes. So my podcast is on all the major platforms. It is called after the crisis with Victoria English Martin. And my website is victoriaenglishmartin.com. That's so awesome. So Victoria, yeah. for our last question, will you tell me if you were gonna go back in time to Victoria who was you know, struggling and in and out of the treatment and you know, had everything else really together, but this mm -hmm. one thing, what would, what would you tell her about how it is for you now? Oh gosh. I would say, trust your inner voice, trust your instincts. The universe has your back. Mm. Don't give up on yourself. You're worth it. So good. Mm -hmm. So good. That's yeah. so awesome. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been really oh, a pleasure. What a thank you. Story. Well, thanks for letting me share. I hope it helps others who are listening. That's awesome. Thanks, Annie. Hi, are you looking to connect with like-minded people? Sometimes maybe you feel like 
as someone who knows all this information from the snake in mind or the alcohol experiment that you're living in a world of muggles and people just don't speak your language. That is why I created The Exchange. The Exchange is an online community where we meet face-to-face live video calls multiple times a week with people from all over the globe just to connect, to have somewhere you are seen and you're heard and you feel less alone and really that you can give back and get the support you need. So if this sounds great to you, check it out at thisnakedmind.com backslash exchange. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.